friends. Thanks for tuning back into this podcast episode. We are excited to bring you a new episode about one of our favorite electronic musicians of all time, Daphne Oram. We recorded this episode live inside of our private Facebook group, the Cosmic Tape Music Club, same name as the podcast. So if you're not in there already, go ahead and join at the link in the show notes uh, so you can be part of the conversation as we extend it out during the week in the group. Um, So like we said, this was recorded live. It's a little bit more conversational. You might hear things that sound like we're talking to people that aren't there. I promise they were there. Um, But this is the best of that whole conversation and we hope you enjoy it who are we covering today um so yeah i guess uh augustus is anxious to get right into our normal conversation i'm just curious i have no idea they don't tell me these things (laughs) um so as we noted uh we are discussing daphne orm today yeah kind of a big one uh someone that is considered the godmother of electronic music the founder of um, the BBC Radiophonic Work. You know, we thought we knew a lot about her already, um, but I mean a lot. We've like, been digging you know. more and just getting a lot more new anecdotes and things. Daphne Oram is a name you've never heard. That excites us because we love to share new things. To yeah, if, people. if we have the opportunity to enlighten you to her existence. Yeah, we think you're going to really dig it. That would um, be great. She is known as the founder of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, which uh, was sort of the answer to what was going on in Europe. Uh, Like we've discussed Pierre Schaefer in uh, Paris. Uh, We haven't touched on Stockhausen yet, but he was over in Germany. Um, You know, doing things uh, with tape music, um, experimenting. And so in England, they um, started the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Well, let's talk a little bit about like the the backstory there, like, you know, about how was, she started it. She yeah. pretty much, you know, let's, let's there's so look. many angles that we could start from. So early life, let's apparently from when life. she was yeah. seven years old, she could visualize, um, like sound. sound she, yes. was, she was a very gifted child, very interested in um, sound. She said that someday there would be a way for her to create the sound that she visualizes. That she would be able to draw it. I'm pretty sure she was very specific at age seven, this is the anecdote, that she told her father one day she would build a machine that she could draw and it would make sound. She must have had this way of experiencing sound that was visual, that she was like, I know if I could communicate sound visually, this would be... We won't spoil that part because, like, you know, it... So that's just an idea. That was a thought that she had when she was seven. Whether or not it actually happened is yet to be discussed. And, but, you know, I'd like to just point on that she was born in 1925, so between the two world wars. Um, so she was an adult during World War II. And a lot of the people that we've talked about were um, involved some way in the war effort. And that's how they got into telecommunications or radio or electronic music was by being exposed to the tools, the tubes, and what have you, Um, and the technology, um, the education was through the military, Um, and she has a similar trajectory, but she was born a little bit earlier than some of the people we've discussed. Um, Well, maybe right in the middle. Well, hence her founding status. But it's all kind of right around the same time. Um, So she studied music? Yes. And electronics? 
That's what's said, that she studied music and electronics. How formally, we don't know. Did yeah, she go so to that's, university? That's something we want to look into. So mm. part of the, the reason that we do these conversations is because we want to spark conversation. Uh, we know some things. We've looked into some things. But we want to spend the week exploring more about it. Some questions are going to come up in this conversation. You may you know, present some questions that you have in the thread here um, so that we can dig more into them together. It's more fun to do things together, we think. Yeah, it's, it's great to just sort of get everyone thinking about the same topic, a centralized topic, and then sort of experiencing this hive mind. It's so in the few that we've done so far, I've found it to be really edifying and inspiring in our music making. So like the deeper that we get, the more that we all share together, the more it kind of inspires me and makes me realize I think it's helped me get inside of these people's minds more and their creative thought rather than just like this is when they were born. This is what we know. The you know the highlights of it's their already life. like influenced or maybe some me. Albums, I've even yeah. made some gear choices <laughs> based off yeah. of like people that we've covered it's already. Really I've like changed some, some some ideas for synthesizer us. modules out. Like so, if it's done that for you, we'd love to know because um, we're always trying things, testing things out, seeing what works, what connects. Mm -hmm. um, what speaks to people, what inspires you. Um, you know, if it, if it speaks to us, we figure it probably, you know, connects with most people too, you know, if it hits at a deep level. Um, so yes, obviously we were talking about, you know, her early life, that she was always interested in music. That seems to be a theme as well. These people don't just one day wake up and go, yeah, I guess I'll get into electronic music. Right. They were like early on exposed to it, early on being educated in it, um, going to school for composition, things like that. Well, going back to the war, it was said that because of you know the fact that men were called off to war. Oh yeah, this is a fun. She was well. able to wrangle a job as a balancing engineer. A balancing yes. engineer. Tell me more about being a balancing engineer. What does that even mean? Um, in in the old days, I believe that it was kind of like your mixing and mastering all in one um you know before the advent of multi-track recording and tape uh, a balancing engineer was sort of the person responsible for getting the levels right that ultimately became the final recording because that's really all you got like one shot at it, it yeah. yeah there wasn't as much to it like you know you might balance some levels and then you know, whatever medium you're recording it to, that's that's the way it's going to be. And so there was probably an art and a science to getting the levels right so that they came out, you know, recorded on the other side. Well, you know, they they, they wanted the the final product to be a well balanced, for, delightful for radio result for right. for radio. Yeah, and also there's probably some. Stipul stipulations for creating something that was uh, appropriate, you know, sound level-wise for radio versus other mediums. Yeah, radio was the thing of the time. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I do find it very interesting that she was able to get a job that she normally wouldn't have been able to get just because of the war and that the, all the men were off at war. Um, so it's actually here on her Wikipedia page, which I know we could all be reading together. Um, anyone can find that. But uh, specifically about being a music balancer at the BBC, that one of her job responsibilities was shadowing live concerts. 
uh, with a pre-recorded version so the broadcast would go on if interrupted by enemy action. So that's a pretty, pretty nifty. I don't know why I used that word, but um, <laughs> she did also create sound effects for radio shows and mixing broadcast levels. So that's... Um, I'd say the majority of people's jobs were affected because of the war. I mean, they, they kind of had like the war version of their job. Yeah, so this is 1942, 1943. So really... Um, they're trying to keep life as normal as possible. My mom was alive. for the worst. Oh, our first mom reference of today's <laughs> broadcast. Always got to um, bring her in there. So, uh... She was alive and she was in England. During this time when she's working at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop... Or, sorry, at BBC, at the radio, um, working as a music balancer, she became aware that, you know, there were experiments being done with synthetic synthetic sound and tape recorders. Um, so the real pivotal moment is when she was told that she was allowed to go and dig through sort of redundant uh, equipment that was kind of in storage um, and use it after hours and work on these ideas that she had. Well, about she really had to music. press for it. Yeah. You know, she had to like basically beg someone to let her use equipment when it was not being used. Uh, yeah. Apparently she would use it and then return it Yeah, that perfectly. was so crazy. She would put everything back. She would take things like, from almost all like a over little, the place. She would stay uh, there all night, work on stuff. Can you? The tedious work of recording things to tape and splicing and looping and all that. She would do it all night and then put it back. And then what? Go to work in the morning? It reminds me <laughs> of that story where like the elves are like in the shoe shop like working all night and then like everything gets returned back to normal when the owner like yeah, arrives. Yeah, she's a little tape music elf. Yeah. <laughs> Very magical. So she was pretty much on her own doing all of this and she started the BBC Radiophonic Workshop because she was already doing all this on her own with uh, her... How did she get paired? Like, how, why was she um, considered to have started it not on her own, but she started it with Desmond Briscoe? Uh, I believe like, so, I'd yeah. be curious to know. That's the one thing that I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm referencing... How did Desmond um, Briscoe get involved? This book, it's Tape Leaders by Ian Halliwell, a very good reference for all things British electronic music and tape music pioneers. But it says that through her dedication and support, uh, through the dedication and support of Desmond Briscoe and sympathetic drama producers, the Radiophonic Workshop oh. came into being in April of 1958. I see. So it was started in 1958, and she needed. This was the same year that she. He sort of was like her sponsor. He sort of was like, "All right, I'll vouch for her. We have an interest in this." I know that you know the initial. Uh, setup was to create, uh, you know, radio dramas, um, and I was just listening to what they consider the first radiophonic uh, radio show or performance mm -hmm. that was done, um, the Private Dreams and what what is it? Public Dreams and Private Nightmares. I need to find that. Um, the uh, sort of announcer, the guy who's presenting it, the voiceover. 
describes that, you know, this is the first of its kind and he's introducing it to the public who are listening. And he's sharing that, um, you know, they didn't want to call it music as they might call it in other parts of Europe where it's being experimented with. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why they called it radiophonics because they thought it should specifically be used for radio dramas where for this, you know, performance, um, they did a poem that they used tape music to enhance the mood. So they were talking about how it's not necessarily for music and it's not necessarily for sound effects. It's something in between where right. it enhances the experience. It's kind of like a psychological mm. perspective where they thought, you know, it does lend itself very easily to sort of spooky sounds and abrasive things. He mentioned horror and things like that. Mm -hmm. And they were interested in how can they find a niche with tape music at the BBC, um, where it's more for uh, subtle emotions, uh, sadness, grief. Um, you know, we associate it a lot with like sort of a haunting, uh, you know, digging through memories and things like that, sort of a dream state. Um, so Daphne was part of that initial project, that very first presentation. So I'm gonna find, a, there's a YouTube uh, of it where you can listen to the whole thing. So I'm gonna find it. So 1958 was the same year that she visited the Brussels World Fair, which uh, apparently oh, that was- the famous Brussels World Fair with the Atomium, right? Uh, yeah, she heard electronic music from people overseas, I guess. Oh, so that's where she was really exposed to, to Stockhausen and right. Schaefer. She was also in regular contact with uh, F.C. Judd. Someone oh, right, who they did correspond. I am sure that we will cover. Yeah, um, we're going to have to. He was another pioneer, um, did a lot of circuit design and things to... He was very enthusiastic about everyone having access to these technologies. Created an early video synthesizer. Yeah, that thing is really cool. So she was really connected uh, with whoever the pioneers at the time were. She was in contact or she was aware of them. Um, but I don't think that she had a lot of peers at home uh, at the time. Not a lot of champions in her corner. Um, she had a lot of pushback about what she was doing. Um, and, you know, after founding the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and doing the, these experiments, um, she actually didn't stay very long, which I find to be one of the more interesting aspects yes, of her life. Yes, we've discussed this a lot. because It's really apparently fascinating. Apparently she was only there for about six months. Yeah, and there's a strange reason why that we want to learn more about. Was she forced out? So apparently there was a rule at the time that you could only be exposed to strange sounds for six months at a time. And then you had to go work in another department. And then I guess what, six months on, six months off? I'm not sure the exact timeline, but you weren't allowed to spend more than six months around these strange electronic sounds. I don't know why they thought it was dangerous or what they thought was gonna happen. I get it though. I mean, weird but I also, stuff, man. <laughs> I, yeah, I just I feel like they, I have so many questions about like who made that rule up and why. Were they threatened by her? Was it you know right. we didn't hear yeah. of anybody else having? I think 
she basically said she didn't want to work anywhere else at the BBC, so that's why she quit. And maybe other people did do their rotations, and so you don't hear about it because they didn't quit. But she basically said, I don't want to work anywhere else. I started this. I, I want to stay here. So she left, and she founded an uh, stu electronic studio in her house. Uh, she moved to Kent, and she founded uh, what they say is probably the first electronic music studio in Britain. And, um, Aside from the radio, it really was show. just you know a house that she lived in, and she had, I think, chickens and goats and cats, and apparently she had a lovely garden, and she cooked and worked on what the next chapter of her life is, and what her real legacy is beyond the Radiophonic Workshop is the Oramics machine, that famous machine that she told her father she would make one day. Right. And I find that interesting that, you know, we've discussed many of these electronic pioneers, electronic music pioneers, and a lot of them seem to have this one machine, you know, like you've got your Totos, you've got your... Your Tontos. To yeah, 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 Tontos, sorry. For a second I was like, wait, is your, that something I don't know about? Your Electroniums. <laughs> yes. You know, like your, what's the your one troutoniums. for... Yeah, your Troutoniums. Your Theremins. Uh, yeah, so, you know, this was her machine, like she had. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. I found a bunch of little short videos on Vimeo that someone made about the Aramix machine that are some of the best ones I've seen so far. So I'm going to share some of those because they get really up close on the machine. So this was her dream come to life. She got some grants apparently. Well, does it say in the book who those grants were from? She got some pretty uh, hefty grants to build this machine. And just, you know, that's all she did. She had uh, demonstrations, I think on the weekends it said. She would, uh, you know, people like, most of the people we know from the Radiophonic Workshop would come out and kind of get the demonstration of the machine. And it was always being worked on. It was rumored that uh, Mick Jagger and somebody from the Beatles, maybe yeah. George Harrison or somebody like that, might have some, checked some, it out. Some <laughs> young blokes from Liverpool is what they said. And one <laughs> came from in like 1960 came to her house from. to check it out. It was very cutting edge, but still pretty underground. I don't see where the um, the grants came from. Well, she had received a couple grants to work on the uh, Aramics machine um, with the expectation, I think, that it was going to be, you know, functional within a few years and be this big breakthrough in technology that they could then develop further. Um, but it turns out that she spent her whole life working on it and then just kind of gave up, in, I think, in the 70s. She, she gave switched. up, but she, she switched to yeah. Apple. <laughs> she did. She switched to Apple computers in, I guess, the early 80s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she realized that what was what her dream these videos. was probably possible with the computer, um, you know, probably in a much more viable, um, you know, way, I guess, that, you know, than, it, than it would be with these, you know, hand-drawn machines on film and light and mechanical um, you know, d device, you know, versus a computer that, you know, at the time, um, I think even with, like, since she used the Apple II, but I think even like, you know, back then they had like light pins 
that was like an accessory that you could have with the computer. Well, I didn't know that. And you could use that to, you know, kind of like draw uh, a basic waveform. And uh, you could get, you know, the sound that you wanted that way. Uh, speaking of that, now, uh, if you've never checked out, there's a few programs that do it. I know Pro Tools does it, but um, Audacity, uh, which I talk about from time to time, it's the free audio editor for Linux, PC, Mac, it's on all the platforms, it's open source. It's a really good audio editor. I pretty much use that, I would say, most of the time when I'm just like recording audio or, or making samples and things. Um, but what's really cool about it is you can actually draw in that program. Like if you wanted to, you know, if you heard a sound, for example, in your mind and you, and you had a, a visual, uh, you know, picture of what that might look like, or you just have like a shape, you know, that you want to hear what that would sound like, uh, you could use that program to kind of like draw in with the mouse, like a rough version of that shape. And then you'd actually get to hear it. Like you like hit play and it, it plays back the sound of the shape she would so be it's, it's pretty cool pretty into that i think so the, <laughs> i'm linking to that too. the vision that she had it's audacity. no surprise to me that she ended up going the computer route because her vision you know basically took that direction you know like it never there was never really a formal machine like electromechanical machine that did this it, it, happened. it never happened that way. It, it never happened right that computers. way. It went, you know, the computer was, was the winner in that race. Um, but I'm, I'm one of these people that, like, I love film. I love tape. I love these, you know, electromechanical processes. I love analog. Um, you know, so I always have these, like, crazy dreams where, you know, like, what if, you know, the, the technology of, like, the 60s and 70s had just been continued you know, instead of even ahead. though they weren't practical, like mm. like like, what if the same effort right the would have been put into yeah. you know if aliens came and <laughs> oh no it has to involve aliens <laughs> and you know put the same effort that you know showed us all these devices that they put the same effort we put into computers but in keeping analog you know, moving forward to like, you know, what kind of stuff would we have come up with? And I think that the Oramex machine would have been one of those kind of devices where we would, you know, be doing these elaborate, you know, film, you know, art, art you know, visual art turning into sound type projects. I feel like it would... It is very unique. I don't know if there's anyone who was doing something similar. That's going to be a question that I have. Uh, I do believe that we have shared stuff. Wasn't there... Well, there was a group of Soviet pioneers right. who were um, drawing on film mm -hmm. um, back in, I want to say, the 20s. Yeah, early on. Very early on, and that was really cool. But this is something a little bit different because it's... She's drawing, but she's also building the machine to generate the sound oh I see so it had sort of like a custom sound generation device that specifically she went had because they were these... using standard film yeah. projectors yeah, 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 yeah. to read because like a sound film projector for example reads sort of like a drawing 
you know, or, mm-hmm. or a wave shape that's recorded onto sound film, onto a magnetic strip. So it's like oxide, I think it's the same technology as tape is used for that process. But I was gonna say, if it was in the 20s, like there was a lot of, uh, a lot more experimentation with like um, electromechanical means for, you know, people were trying to figure out what was gonna be basically tape. Yeah, 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 because they were, they were using yeah there was a lot of experimentation specifically at that time to try to figure out what the best way techniques you know, yeah machines that were very dangerous sound and wire recorders and yeah. oil cans and <laughs> <all laughs> there were of very stuff. proprietary things that never developed into what we have now it just kind of went to tape um, I've sort of lost the thread of what I wanted to go to next. I got so excited about what we were talking about. Oh, is anybody, was anybody else doing this at the time? Um, so we're gonna look into that. But her machine was really homemade. Um, there is a video that I shared of the people who kind of got it out of storage. I think it was right. in like a house somewhere in France. Well, yeah, and it was, they did a, an art, expedition right yeah that they at a museum they curated this you know i think it they was involved like 20, all the heavy hitters 2011 they brought everybody back to like figure like out what the peter zenovia what the um what the piece should be about brian hodgson <laughs> um yeah all the heavy hitters were involved um but her machine was in complete disrepair um covered in cobwebs um when you if you watch the clip which i highly recommend it's not very long um you'll see that it's it almost looks like it's taped together you know like how did this thing work at all it looks like it never worked and i heard one of the curators say that there's no possible way to restore it because anything they do using stuff we have now would make it not what it was. It would no longer be the Oramics machine. Was it tube-based? Yes. Gotcha, that's why. Um, but also it's because there's there's some, there are notes that she left behind, um, but we, we were, we're not inside her head. It was very much what was inside her head was what this machine was, and it doesn't make much sense, and we don't really know well, the little, what was going on. The little that I know about tubes, like, the whole deal with tubes is that, like, if she referenced certain types of tubes, um, there are tubes that used to exist that, you know, would allow you to do certain functions that there literally isn't, like, a solid-state replacement for. So, like, if she referenced using a tube in a certain way, there's literally no way that you can, like, recreate those same series of actions with something that's available now. So it's, like... And then that would screw up the whole logic of the circuit kind of thing. Like, so it makes sense to me how it wouldn't be possible, you know, to recreate some of those ideas. It's also just, it was always being fiddled with. She was always trying out some other adaptation on it. So it's hard to know what version would we have now to, to even recreate or to fix. So it's really just sort of a piece of history that is non-functional. Um, that just is going to sit in a museum, which I think is a good thing because there is a lot to discuss about it. And I'm glad that they found it and that we can see, like, her handwriting is on it and things like that. Um, it's a very But cool yeah, she just bit, fiddled yeah. with it all day, every day, her entire life. 
just on this machine. Um, she did uh, do work for commercials and films. So after yeah, she, she left, kept going. Yeah, after she left the Radiophonic Workshop, she did get work using, um, you know, I, I assume she was using the Ramics machine to make the music, but mm. she might have been, you know, doing things with just tape. Yeah, I mean, I, I, she's got her she pretty decent a, amount of... Yeah, she had it set up as an electronic music studio. Recorded works. She was able to get work uh, doing commercials. Like we said, she got grants. She did a film, um, which was pretty famous. I'm finding this interesting bit here about her film work, um, that she did make uh, electronic sounds for... Um, things that were used in like James Bond films and stuff, but she was never credited. Um, she added sounds to the soundtrack of Snow, which was a short documentary made in 1963. Um, and then she did uh, work with that same director again, and she is credited for the electronic treatment of music for a film called Rail in 1967. I've heard that she was, she did make a movie that was a pretty big deal with um, Deborah Kerr in it. Um, okay. So she had these moments, I think, probably between 1960 and 1968, where she was doing Lego commercials and she was in adverts for tape machines and she was really cutting edge and there were little mini documentaries about her on BBC promoting the Aramics machine. Um, but then I think she was sponsored kind of by Brunel. There's a lot of Brunel ads. They were oh, I love a, the Brunel ads. A British uh, tape machine company. Apparently that's the brand that the Beatles had at home. Oh. Um, they were... They were considered the best. Yeah, they were kind of like the um, Ampex of Great Britain. Oh, okay. Um, I've, I have like a permanent um, search, uh, like a saved search engine thing from, for eBay for Brunel. And like you know, oh, nothing the ever comes, it comes up. up yeah, nothing ever comes up. Like there's like literally an ad. Like one of these like Daphne Orem ads will pop up every once in a while, or you know something like that. But they're they're very rare, especially in this country. I bet you in England they're they very pop cool up looking too. I'm gonna often. try to find. But they were sort of the, the go-to brand of tape machine for for music concrete in in the UK and. Uh, any sort of tape editing. Probably share some of those photos. But I guess they had a pretty cool feature set. So she did have a lot of support. There was a lot of enthusiasm around her ideas, and I think she was also really good at selling them and sounding very, um, like, you're going to want to get in on this. I'm an expert. This is, you know, she, she talked with a lot of authority about it mm. whenever I listened to her. Um, she was very certain that this is what she was going to do. It was well, going to be successful. Yeah, and she's been, she had been visualizing it since she was seven years old. So yeah. I'm sure she was very, she was speaking from full confidence by the time a lot of it was coming to be. Oh, this is what it is. Jack Clayton's horror film, The Innocence. That's 1961. That's the one that was really... Uh, big. Big deal. Um, if anybody's seen that, we have not. We'll have to check that one out. But yeah, she did a lot of work. Okay, so in 1962, she was awarded a grant that's equivalent to 76,000 pounds today um, from the Gobekian Foundation. Gobekian, that's yeah. right. Um, to create the Oramic system. And then she got another one a couple years later that was probably 
I don't know, they don't say how much that one was worth, but close to probably 80,000 pounds today. Um, and cool. I think it's, you know, it's said that they were pretty bummed. They were pretty bummed that she didn't finish it and that it wasn't something that could be, you know, I guess mass produced. And then there was a software version, like we were saying in the 1980s, um, that she worked on with another grant. Um, Did that one come to fruition? I don't know. Hmm. Did her software version come to fruition? That's a good question. I would say that, that there's a, probably a much higher chance than it did. <laughs> Knowing what, what, you know. It sounds like though she did um, fall ill around that same time and then mm. just kind of never recovered. She lived till 2003 though. Right, yeah. But she was kind of sick that whole time. Gotcha. Yeah, in the 90s she had a couple strokes and mm. She didn't really recover, so. So she wasn't working like hard in her later years. Correct. She just kind of. And that's why the Aramix machine, so she stopped in like 1979, let's say. Uh, it kind of went into like a, a shed and, and collected dust while she worked mm -hmm. on the software version, and then that didn't go anywhere, or we'll find out more about that throughout the week. Right. And um, yeah, it was just kind of like went to nothing. And so we're digging, we're like archeologists, digging it up, mm -hmm. putting all the pieces back together um, because it's really fascinating, these really creative kind of one-off endeavors that people were doing all around the world kind of at the same she time. She seems like somebody that from what I gather, she had a lot of short spurts. Like she was like a sprinter. Like she would get really far, really fast with things and then- And then move on and th things would sort of fizzle out, which I've found is kind of like a, a common thread with, with creative types. I'm really also interested in her work, which I'm not really seeing here. I need to look more into uh, the work that she did in schools. Mm. So I'd love to connect with some people who had that experience <laughs> and how it affected them if it got them into electronic music or if it just freaked them out. But she went and did these programs in schools. I know she connected them. with um, Janet Beat, who we've talked about on the show before, oh, who yeah. was Scottish, mm -hmm. uh, well, British originally, but, you know, moved ended up in Scotland. to Scotland and worked in the educational system uh, for music and electronic music um, there. And I think that there's you know, reference in this book here of her and, you know, so she definitely connected with Daphne throughout her career. So she had a lot of, uh, how cool to be alive at that time and to have all those relationships. Like <laughs> right. writing with FC Judd and like doing educational stuff with Janet B. That is so cool. And all the guys at the, the workshop who feel Kinda. like she really mentored them and guided them. Well, I think what would happen was anytime they ran into something that, you know, if she was probably like a, an adjunct problem solver of things that they would encounter, you know, at the workshop. Like she, I have a feeling mm. she wasn't ever really completely out of contact with them. Yeah, they would Even though she didn't her. work Apparently there. she made a very good vegetable soup. Yeah. <laughs> We, we, we've heard reports of her making an amazing vegetable soup and that she was a, um, a true farm-minded, like, garden. Yeah, all the vegetables were from her garden. Minded. We were listening to a radio show that 
um, was an interview with the band Broadcast. I don't know if you guys have heard of them, but uh, this this band Broadcast and Johnny Trunk was uh, doing the interview. It was his show, yeah. It was his show, and they played a this Daphne Warren piece. Probably 2007, I want to say. Yeah, and they played a piece from Daphne Orem. Yeah, if I can find that again. Did in conjunction That'll probably lead with me to the full um, an educational the full recording and to find out more about that work that she did. She also wrote a very important book, kind of like her uh, thesis on all of this, um, called An Individual Note of Music, Sound, and Electronics. So this is her theories and such. Should be reading that before I go to sleep instead of watching crappy television shows. <laughs> we all need our distractions right now. And a lot of her sound, her songs, musical. so to speak, you could tell that the whole point of them were, um, and it just hit me that like I probably do that a lot too. But like they were almost like experiments in sound. Like you could tell that like if you listen to each piece. You're like, oh, well, she there. She was trying to do this, yeah. She was really interested in the idea of like recording this band and seeing what would happen if she like sped up and slowed down the tape throughout their performance. Would it like create this different, you know, vibe? Um, you know, and, and you, it's almost like her. She would do music to explore certain techniques in the studio, which I think is kind of common with a lot of these types of artists as well. Like you know they. They use making recorded bits that, you know, we end up like worshiping as, you know, the examples of their work, but the, their point in doing them were, was more from like a technical standpoint of like, you know, how do I explore this one concept? You know, I want to, I want to do a tape flange, mm -hmm. you know, like across an entire track. And that's, that's what the whole sound piece is. But I'm just like, I love that song. <laughs> I'm grabbing uh, what has become my favorite tune of hers oh, called so Bird of Parallax. It's a very good one. So I'm going to share that. It's long too, right? Uh, it is longer. It's like 13, it's 13 minutes. minutes. Um, <laughs> somebody says on here, before Pink Floyd, there was Daphne Orem, <laughs> which is true, technically. Right. <laughs> um, but I'm going to share this one for listening. Um and you know enjoyment but again we'll be posting individual posts throughout the week uh asking these questions seeing what more we can find out getting you know some listening experiments going um but we're just putting them in the thread here sort of as a reference for ourselves <laughs> to come back to um so yeah her book is really cool and i want to read that and the cover is really i really like it uh but I think that's probably where we'll end for now on Daphne. And um, we'll obviously continue in the group throughout the week, unless you have any closing thoughts. Uh, not in particular. I'm sure there's some stuff we missed that we'll, we'll talk about in the group this week. It's so much. Um, we have so much fun doing all the research and finding out more and reading and watching videos. And well, I guess my final note would be, you know, that her work was like a never ending ripple throughout electronic music um, as we know it. Like, you know, she, not only did she found the Radiophonic Workshop, but the experiments and her sort of style, I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, one could almost say that she invented the, the techniques that they used, you know, in the Radiophonic Workshop. Not necessarily that she invented tape editing, but she, 
kind of like laid a foundation for how it was done. You know what I mean? Because I, she yeah. spoke with such authority. How, how it was used with the radio programs and things like that. And she spoke with such authority and was so confident in, in the way that she thought about sound that it was like she would sort of just like, you know, do things and people would sort of like, that's how it's done. You know, they, mm. she kind of like set like a precedent. They do, yeah, they say she's the godmother of electronic right. music. So, you know, the, the fact that, you know, she was that influential, you know, I just, that blows my mind. Like, yeah, you know, to think that, powerful. you know, almost the whole point in our group, the Cosmic Tape Music Club, and, you know, a lot of the techniques that we use with our music and everything, you know, it would, who, who knows what it would, if it would even exist if it wasn't for Daphne or Yeah. So, big, she's a, she's a heavy she's hitter. She's a heavy hitter for sure. Beyond feels, feels like a big thing to honor her. Really and comprehension. To, in my to even, you know. <laughs> Thank you for checking out another episode of our podcast. Before you tune out, please listen to a selection of music from our Cosmic Tape Music Club members. Check the show notes for artist information.